Hello and welcome to our Brave New Economic World number seven. In this podcast, Jerry and Paul ask, are we really heading for global recession? As usual, there's a link to notes in the information section. And don't forget to subscribe to receive each podcast automatically. Happy listening. Good afternoon, Paul. Uh, You're in Bangkok and I'm in Brisbane, as per usual. Our podcast today is the 29th of October 2019. It's a Tuesday, uh, both in Australia and in Bangkok. And we have Simon, our production manager in Hong Kong. So we have a truly international call yet again. And and it's Um, the 90th anniversary of Black Tuesday. Correct. Yes, the 90th anniversary. Okay, I don't know if that means anything. (laughs) So uh, we've got a list of things today. I've uh, got an agenda of 11 items. Uh, We'll start with the Federal Reserve and what they may or may not do tomorrow in in Washington, D.C., Will they or will they not lower interest rates? And I think you and I are both in full agreement that it won't matter whether they lower them or whether they don't. So it's a sideshow, in my opinion, now, whether they lower or don't lower their interest rates. Their funds rate is at 2.25% overnight uh, interest rate, but the short-term Treasury interest rates are already considerably below that and going lower as, as we speak. Absolutely. I mean, Richard, yep. Richard Werner, who both both you and I know and uh, and I think appreciates a great deal. You know, he's he's made the point for a number of years, and he came out with what, what he said was a sort of scientific or empirical proof that market interest rates are really a reflection of the economy. They're driven by the economy. Policy rates, you know, tend to follow because if, if not then policy rates get out of sync and we tend to get things like you know, yield curve inversion. So really, policy rates can get out of sync and they can cause damage when they do. But the, the idea that the FOMC can do something by, by setting a policy rate tomorrow that's going to have any kind of significant feedback loop into the economy is something that I, I just don't think it make, makes any sense at all. And I think Richard's right. And I think anybody listening to this should go away and, uh, and read Richard's empirical paper on that, uh, where he studied the effects, he studied the causalities, and yes, basically determined that economies and economic activity drives its interest rates. And, and it's almost like the central banks are a, a passenger strapped into a sidecar coming along for the ride. Yes, uh, I think that's true. I mean, I'm a great admirer of Richard Werner's work. I think he's very much worth reading and listening to. And I'd encourage all our listeners to look up uh, Richard Werner, W-E-R-N-E-R, on YouTube and watch any of his videos. They're an education in themselves. Richard says that we should not be trying to control our economies through interest rates. We should be trying to control our economy through the volume of money supply. And I agree totally with that. I think that's the the obvious way to go. And the central banks really don't have much really to do with that side of the equation. And I think in the United States, I think Trump is just telling them what to do now. And they're, they're, they're basically just following his uh, direction. And what is he telling them? He's telling them you've got to buy lots and lots of short-term treasury bills at the short end of the yield curve. And when they buy, they call, of course, the Federal Reserve is saying this is not QE, and they're correct. Theoretically, it's not QE, but nonetheless, it's buying treasury securities in large volumes. And those large volumes will inevitably push short-term interest rates down and uh, on the yield curve. So the yield curve will become more normal and the short-term interest rates will be lower than the long-term interest rates. And and I've noticed that's already happening. Uh, even in the last few weeks, I've seen the yield curve starting to look a lot more normal in the United States. So I think they're just, yeah, they're in now, they're, they're not in charge. They're being told what to do and they're doing it. And it's very interesting to see that development. I think it'll just get more and more that way. I think um, they're going to buy enormous amounts of short-term treasuries, uh, in my opinion. And the reason they are going to do this is just to drive the US economy. This is how they're going to fund their, their budget deficit going forward and not through the, through the sale of bonds or long-term bonds, long-term securities. They're going to very much move towards funding their deficit through these massive uh, short-term uh, treasury security 
purchases. And so you'll get, they'll get a better yield curve. They'll get a lot of spending from the federal government. And I mean a lot. I'm seeing huge increases in federal government spending in the United States. And all of this boils down, as far as I can see, is that uh, over the next 12 months, we're going to see, I think, Trump buy the election. He's going to make it uh, so that the American people can't do anything but vote for him because they're going to have lower interest rates. They're going to have huge government's expenditure of the economy should pick up with that. And by the end of next year, I would expect if it gets through to the election, he'll probably win the election because of all of that. What are your thoughts on on all of those things, uh, Paul? Yeah, look, I think generally I'd agree with all that. Most first presidents have historically tended to encourage or create a stimulus program that's increased the amount of liquidity in the US economy. Uh, the ones that haven't have tended to be single-term presidents, to be honest with you. I think Jimmy Carter was one that, uh, that stands out as, uh, as having contracted the money supply in his final year of presidency. But most first-term presidents tend to do that. And it does tend to at least give a veneer of economic improvement. The one point you made that I think I'd, I'd, I'd probably push back on slightly is I'm not convinced that that kind of funding and the way that it's likely to be used and that kind of uh, deficit stimulus, that kind of deficit spending, is actually going to have meaningful impact on the broader U.S. economy. And I think you know the, the, the problem with it is not so much in the absolute volume, the numbers, but actually in, in the kind of quality of it. I, I think you know we've seen QE, we've seen quantitative easing. But we've never really seen qualitative easing. Um, and again, this is, I don't want to make today all about Richard Werner, but this, this is one point that Richard Werner has made, and, and, and many other economists going back to Adam Smith have made, that actually what you do with the money that's circulating is as important, if not more important, than the volume of money that's circulating. And the difficulty is that the things that would probably help in an election year and you know the things that I think we've seen that Trump and the Republican Party are historically uh, aligned with are, are not the kind of stimulus measures that are likely to make a significant impact on the broader U.S. economy. Where the U.S. economy really needs to, to pick up right now is the, the struggling you know, smaller, mid-sized companies that are heavily indebted. It's the struggling sort of 50% of the population that are historically low <coughs> real income levels. You've actually got to get you know money into into their hands for them to be able to spend. And I just don't think that uh, a Trump deficit spending program, however large it is, is going to be focused on doing that. Well, I agree. I don't think he even intends that. I think he only wants to do two things. He wants to just make sure they don't have an, a recession and he wants to win a re-election. So... Uh, he doesn't really care about anything else. All he cares about is, you know, avoid recession, number one, and number two, get re-elected. And what you're referring to there are higher goals, trying to restructure and build a better economy is is not even on the agenda. I, I think it's all going to be about volume and speed. They're going to spend a lot of money. They're going to spend it fast. And they don't really care where it goes, I don't think, um, because they just want to avoid a recession and get re-elected. So I, I'm a bit cynical, but I think that's what they're going to do because I think that's what Trump's like. I mean, you know, he's uh, he feels threatened by even the smallest opposition. Uh, so imagine how he feels about being uh, not re-elected. He is going to go crazy, I think, in the next 12 months and just spend like a madman. And, I think you know, that's that, true, that, Jerry, but I think, I think there's a point that I think we're very close to the um, point at which these you know, higher goals, if you want to call them that, are actually impacting also on, you know, the more immediate, the more day-to-day, i.e. can we avoid a recession? There's a manufacturing recession in the, the US you know, in terms of output, in terms of uh, new orders, in terms of hours worked by workers in the manufacturing industry, uh, in terms of salaries in manufacturing. So, I think the problem is that that bottom 50% or whatever it is of U.S. wage earners, I think that we're getting to the stage where avoiding recession is pretty much going to fall entirely on their shoulders. I think, you know, we've seen for the last 10 years an attempt to stimulate growth, stimulate the economy, stimulate activity by boosting asset prices. And I think all of us know that trickle down doesn't work, never was going to work. But I think trickle down is still the, the focus of the credit creation and the deficit spending. So again, I'd, I'd slightly differ in that I would question 
as to how effective this massive deficit spending that you're going to see. I'd question how effective that is. And I think, you know, one, one, one place that we could almost look at to learn the lesson, it's almost like a, a financial laboratory experiment, is what's been happening in China. In China, for the last two years, they've been embarking on some pretty significant stimulus programs. And none of these yet really seem to be to be feeding through. Admittedly, there's a very different challenge in China, which is the, um, the headwind of euro-dollar illiquidity. So there, there just aren't enough dollars outside America. And I know this is a point that you've made many times in, in Boom editorials, but there aren't enough dollars outside America for everywhere outside America to, to be able to grow at any kind of rate of knots. And that's, that's obviously uh, impacting China. But I think the state is going to find similar challenges for different reasons to, to those that China's encountered in the last couple of years. And, and, and I think one big difference now is also that there are so many negative feedback loops that are coming back into America from, from overseas. And America is, is probably sort of standing out as the fastest growing or least slow growing major economy that's out there right now. And yet it's getting dragged down by the rest of the world in effect. And it's also getting dragged down by its internal dynamics. So, you know, we're seeing a manufacturing recession. We're seeing wages start to really struggle in the States now. That We're seeing orders, we're seeing uh, PMIs, we're seeing, we're seeing an awful lot of indicators start to look very negative in the States. That creates a, a, a downward trajectory. And I think that all gets exacerbated by the fact that everywhere else in the world, or all major economies in the world, those same things are happening, but, but even more so, even worse, and for longer. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. I, I think America's basic real economy is still struggling quite a lot, and I think it'll keep struggling. So I'm not expecting uh, that Trump is going to suddenly create a miracle uh, American economy. I think it, the numbers are all going to be cosmetic. Everything's going to be cosmetic, uh, but it'll be big cosmetic. It'll be lots of lots of uh, makeup being put on the pig here. You did mention the euro dollar problem, the, the inadequate amounts of euro dollars outside of America. They, those are, for our listeners, they are US dollars that are outside of US borders. It, a relative shortage of euro dollars seems to have become a big problem globally. But I saw this morning, Paul, a report that Russia, China and India uh, have agreed to set up an alternative to the SWIFT payment system. So they're going to connect their payment systems uh, and they're going to avoid the SWIFT payment system, which is based in Belgium and which is American dominated. Now, that's very significant because that's well over three billion people are going to be connected with a payment system that's not going to be under any uh, control by the United States. Did you see that uh, article this morning? By I, I, only, I only saw a headline, to be fair, and, and I think structurally and long term, that's really significant. And I think it's something that will change the dynamic. I, I just worry that in the short term, I'm not sure that's going to be mature enough and substantial enough quickly enough. And, and I guess one, one way of, of uh, trying to explain those concerns, we've seen huge, you know, what people call financial plumbing problems in, in the US banking system, you know, rearing their heads over sporadically over the last few weeks. And one thing that's widely misunderstood is that liquidity problems tend to follow any exercise that has created excess liquidity. The more liquidity you create, the more you're setting yourself up for a liquidity shortage, an illiquidity problem at some point in the in the not too distant future. A simple explanation for that is that liquidity never gets spread around completely evenly. So um, however much liquidity you make, you're probably also amplifying distortions that are there in the distribution of that liquidity. And it's not the people who have surplus liquidity that face uh, liquidity issues. It's the ones who have insufficient liquidity. And so, you know, making making additional liquidity doesn't always solve that. And, and, and that's bad enough in the US dollar payment system. So what's that going to be like in a, in a non-US dollar payment system that's got to suddenly get itself, you know, reasonably quickly up, up to speed? I can't see that that is going to be sufficient to be able to, to fill the gaps or, or, you know, take the strain from all the problems that are being created from the euro dollar shortage and from the dollar shortage as well. So it's, I think it's the right move. I think it'll help us all in the long term. I'm not sure it changes the short to medium term dynamic. 
I know I agree. I think it's a, a long-term thing. It can't happen overnight. It's too big a, a development. But none, nonetheless, I think it's a huge announcement to join these three nations. They are well over 3 billion, uh, 40% of the population on Earth uh, just in those three nations. And of course, then there's all the other uh, Shanghai Cooperation Agreement nations in their uh, region that are also hopefully going to get onto this new payment system as well. So that's all for the for the long term, I agree. Um, but just on China, I just had, I was just in Europe uh, last week or the week before, and I had a meeting with a very close friend of mine who is a very famous uh, fund manager in Europe. And he had just returned from a trip to China and uh, uh, he had never never been to China, I think, previously too much. And and he was absolutely gobsmacked at the infrastructure uh, in China. He said it was amazing, the airports, the railway systems, uh, the movement of people around the country. He was really surprised by it. And he said they're so far ahead now of the United States in terms of their infrastructure that he said they've just built all that, you know, it's, it's there ready to to be used and it, it's you know it's strikingly different to what's happened to the infrastructure inside the United States uh, over the last 20 years so the, the reason he went it actually was on my urging because I said this is the future you know the Belt and Road initiative uh, by China moving west and uh, the linkage of all of the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement nations into a, an economic uh, block of perhaps not the right word to use a block, but nonetheless, uh, that's I guess what it is, is I think just um, the biggest thing coming. And and now that he's seen it with his own eyes, he he was just absolutely gobsmacked how amazing the infrastructure inside China was. And he also was very, very surprised also by a lot of the stands, places like uh, uh, was it Azerbaijan and Tajikistan and uh, these sort of places as well. So it it's happening sort of below the radar of the Western media. They continue to ignore all of this, but but nonetheless, it's happening. Um, Absolutely. And, and look, I think, yeah. um, I think that's a really key point because, again, one thing that I think isn't widely understood, if, if you were to go to um, China, and then fly from uh, a modern Chinese um, uh, technological center with, uh, with, with uh, very high degrees of infrastructure, and fly from there to the United States. Compare and contrast, uh, U.S. infrastructure, is, as we all know, is, is crumbling and has been for a long period of time, isn't getting investment. And you know, what we see is that the, the U.S. is still perceived as being you know, the great technological center of the world. And, and there's some justification for that. But I also think that what we've seen in the last few years is Chinese focus on technology, infrastructure, economic development have all been much more utilitarian. They've actually been, you know, what's necessary, right, let's do it, let's invent it, let's develop it. And a few years ago, let's copy it. But there's less and less of that these days. There's a lot more genuine innovation in China. And I think that the, the US and everybody, you know, holds up Silicon Valley as this great paragon. Well, there's a... There's a lot of very good things about Silicon Valley, but Silicon Valley for me has had its heyday and it's in a very significant deterioration, mainly because it's no longer about utility. It's no longer about the technology. It's no longer about building those new products. It's become an alternative financial center. Yeah, um, I, think it, I think it's a casino, Paul. It's a casino. <laughs> it's a casino. <laughs> it's it's a, a casino and a Ponzi scheme. That's um, right. They're running a casino up on the hill, and they all—they're <laughs> all excited about it. And it, you know, they have good shows on in in the casino, and everyone gets excited, and they all get a bit drunk with the uh, with the show, and they stagger out into the street talking about how how wonderful the casino is. But um, at the end of the day, uh, it's not really really generating a lot of economic uh, benefit and uh, they've had some real big failures lately that we work things just a complete fiasco so i just wonder if there's going to be more of those coming along the line oh i um, think there's way more of those coming along the line i think yeah. you know we work only the latest and maybe the most striking example but you know you look back at eBay, you look at lyft uh, and you know you've got this financialization of of technology and private equity in the states now yeah. and 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 it's it's you know, it, it's, it is, as you say, it's a casino. It's completely yeah. driven by, you know, one reason why disruptive technology is so attractive to a lot of venture capitalists is because it's impossible to price. 
There's no, yeah. there's no benchmark for pricing disruptive technology because it's new and it's different and it's all about some promise of what's going to happen in the future. And, and therefore, if you look at the way that the sort of poster boy for bad behavior, I guess, in the, in the private equity tech sector is, is SoftBank and the vision funds. If you look at the way they work, it's, it's really been largely about controlling private valuations of these entities in, in a way that's, that's completely divorced from commerciality, not just the fact that many of these businesses you know, aren't making a profit and aren't going to make a profit for many years, but, but even just holding very artificial funding rounds where businesses that don't even need money are issuing shares at a given value to their biggest shareholders so that they can actually say, hey, that's the new value. You know, the shareholders yeah, yeah. in several rounds are a little much cheaper. They're very happy to go and issue them at what looked to me like very, very artificial prices. I, I, I agree. I think it's just casino capitalism. I mean, casino capitalism is just a, a sideshow in a, in a tent and they're sort of losing sight of the fact that hang on there's a much you know there's a big economy out there that's got to be uh, some attention has to be paid to the big the big picture of the big economy and they're just ignoring it you know, they're, they're carried away with uh, sparkle and uh, entertainment and um, you know they're essentially a lot of these things are essentially just ponzi schemes uh, uh, you know a last man out gets burnt and the first man in gets makes squillions and it's, it's just a crazy way to look to the future it's not the future it's uh, a bit of a dead end as far as I'm concerned. America seems to be failing in, in, in that respect. It's failing in respect of capitalism because now it's becoming more and more dependent upon massive uh, deficit spending to support its economy and it's failing geopolitically. So there's all this uh, US failure going on. It's not good for the world to see America failing on all these areas. I'd like them to be not failing, but nonetheless, that's that's the world we live in. And the, um, the beautiful example of that is we skip from China right across to the Middle East uh, is the, the rise and rise of Turkey and Russia as the two strongest elements in, uh, you know, basically being the peacekeepers of the Middle East. And, you know, that's really had a big, that's a big change in, in, in the geopolitical side of things as well. So all across the park, I think the United States aren't playing the games very, in a very clever way. They're, they're staggering around, they stagger into the casino tent every now and then, and then they stagger down the road, you know, at the next big show where there's lots of booms and flashing and, you know, the, the military's in charge of that tent. They're not uh, tending to the knitting. So this is this is not good for the US in the long term, and it's not good for the whole planet in the long term. Then, of course, we move further west and we get into Europe, which is now, you know, Draghi's left the European Central Bank and he's left them with a permanent... QE basically just going, they're just going to buy 20 billion euros every month of uh, uh, of bonds and uh, you know that's it. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any uh, other solution turning up. So the Western world, you know, if you look at Western Europe and the United States, is uh, a bit like I think they're a bit like drunken people staggering around the the fairground from tent to tent. But that's not the way you should be running uh, their their very very large economies. And of course. There's one tent there called Brexit, which is where the biggest ruckus is, you know, and uh, all the drunks sort of stagger into the Brexit tent where Boris, uh, you know, jumps up and down and puts the show on. So it's just another sideshow. So these sideshows are all going on in the West and they consume enormous amounts of energy and time, but they actually, you know, they're not building the future. So uh, it's a it, we've become an entertainment-obsessed culture where we're always looking for the next greatest uh, you know, bit of sensation. Uh, so, you know, I'm, it, it's not good. I, I wish we could get some better leaders in the West, uh, but we just don't have them. Uh, simple as that. By the way, I had a quick look this morning at Turkey's stock market and Turkey's bond market and Turkey's currency and all the uh, outrageous threats that Trump made a few weeks ago have all come to nothing. The, the Turkish stocks, uh, bonds and currency are all as stable as can be. So, you know, uh, again, it's just bluster and, you know, entertainment. It's uh, at the end of the day, Turkey's pretty much, I think, winning this particular little battle in, in the Syrian border there. They sort of stated their case. Russia has come in and has assisted them in stabilising Syria. And uh, in a last gasp attempt, Trump tries to grab some oil on the road as, he's, as they're leaving. You know, I mean, it just doesn't look good. It looks terrible. 
And a, a lot of people didn't notice that last week that um, that Putin went to Saudi Arabia and to the United Arab Emirates and was welcomed with open arms, which is pretty amazing. And he even took along, I think it was the Moscow Tchaikovsky Orchestra, and they gave a concert. Um, so he's even trying to civilise them. Uh, Putin is probably the only leader who's, uh, who's popular now in most of the Arab states and popular in Israel too. That's right. I mean, it, it, so... Uh, I think we've got very poor leadership in the Western world, and uh, it's just a pity. You know, the sideshow tents are not good enough. You know, we we need we need to demand better leadership, and it's no surprise, of course, that we're seeing lots of uh, social unrest. We're seeing it in Spain. We're seeing it in the Netherlands, in Germany, in France, of course, with the yellow vests. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, a lot of social unrest in all the South American countries as well. So, yeah, I, I think we've got serious problems with leadership. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how we get out of that, by the way, because um, the there's no new crop of leaders turning up to lead us out of this sideshow mentality. I think we probably always have problems with leadership, but you know what happens is you you notice it when it all starts to build up to you know the the point where you know, chickens that have been running around for years, if not decades, suddenly start coming home to roost. Yeah, well, what are your thoughts about Christine Lagarde taking over at the European Central Bank? Any thoughts on that? I, I think it's putting someone who's going to be ineffective into an ineffective role. I suppose in, in a lot of ways, I'm quite glad that, um, that Draghi's gone because it drove me mad listening to, to, to Draghi and the disparity between um, perception and reality there. And I think you know, Draghi's done an awful lot of damage to the Eurozone, the European border economy in his time at the ECB. But, but I think that just about anybody else would have done, you know, cliche, uh, there's no different. Lagarde, I think if she'd taken the job when Draghi took it, I'm not sure she would have done anything you know, significantly different. I, I think they all central bankers, as you say, are, are, are um, sort of trapped in a, a kind of golden cage that looks great, but there's actually not that much they can do. And uh, and I think that that applies to the head of the ECB you know, more than just about any other central banker. Because the the fiscal constraints that are created by you know the the ridiculous single currency, you know they, they, yeah. they just yeah. just render any ECB head powerless. And I think if you you've got to give Draghi an awful lot of credit in the the um, the one thing that you can aim to do if you're ahead of the ECB is get out of there before it all blows up. And uh, and I think, you know, Trisha just about managed to do that. Draghi's just about managed to do that. Really, um, <laughs> Lagarde would be the one who's actually sitting in the wrong place at the wrong time when it all goes wrong. That's right. I mean, he's walked away and left a permanent QE in place for 20 billion euros a month. Well, 20 billion euros a month is not going to make much difference to an economy that's in the, you know, probably in the 20 trillion euros per year so what's 20 billion per month going to do it's nothing you know i mean basically it's a you know it's just a, a token a gesture to try and help the european economy but really they've just run out of uh, all intellectual power there it's the end of the line for them and they can't do what trump is doing they can't join as a group you know and, and decide for massive uh, deficit spending on a, on a massive scale so i think europe to me looks pretty much uh the goose is cooked. It's not looking good. So that's, you know, I don't think we're going to see any great sunshine out of the European uh, economic situation. They're all, they're all individual nations whose fiscal policy is bound by, you know, the, the, the lowest possible common denominator. So yeah, not right. anything that actually suits or actually fits. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, that's why, that's why European is in such a mess. And because the fiscal, fiscal policy has been so inappropriate, however, active drug is trying to be that's why we've got a european banking system that is in, in a, such a such a hideous mess today and it is it, it remains an accident waiting to happen still yeah that's right um so not much hope on the uh, on the horizon in europe um i did see some uh, a very positive thing this morning though in regard to the united states because tracking back into the us economy and that is the uh, personal savings uh, in the united states are at record highs and they're rising very sharply have you got an explanation for that why are the personal savings rising and uh why uh why isn't that having 
sufficient impact on the credit creation yet. Uh, any thoughts on that, Paul? Well, so, so I think, first of all, we have to question whether personal savings um, increasing is is actually a positive or a negative. In, in, right, in, yeah, yep, yep. Okay, gotcha. It's a negative to the economy because you're taking money out of the economy. Yes. Um, and I think, I think the, the other aspect to look at is people tend to just 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 look at uh, a, a pure stats but you need to have a granularity about this because the um, the distribution of those savings the dispersion of those savings is uh, really what's key here and you know yet again we keep seeing keep seeing stats coming out of the states or coming coming out globally that show that wealth and income disparity are getting you know um, more and more severe all the time. So if that happens, of course, savings are going to increase because income disparity, wealth disparity means that those savings are in the hands of very few people. But but it also emphasizes this point about what a negative impact it has on the economy because it take in effect taking those out of the hands of people who would take them and, and spend them. And this is why you know another good friend of ours, Steve Keen, uh, has always talked about trying to find solutions for, for the current problems by actually putting money into the hands of uh, everybody so that it actually gets into the hands of the people who spend it. Well, you know, to me, increasing savings in the States and increasing wealth and income uh, disparity is a sign that we're doing exactly the opposite of that. All right, uh, that's, uh, uh, it could well be true. I just, uh, that's interesting to hear your comment on that. I just saw the numbers being at a record high and rising very sharply, and I, uh, I wondered, is that a positive or a negative? So you've given an excellent uh, explanation there. What, uh, putting money into the hands of people who will spend it is, I agree with you, a very critical thing. And in my country, Australia, after the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, our government did exactly do that. It gave money to directly to the citizens and it put the money straight into their bank accounts. In other words, people woke up and they looked at their bank balance and it had just gone up by whatever it was, you know, $600 or I forget the number, but $800 or whatever. And some families, you know, large families were getting, you know, thousands of dollars deposited into their bank accounts. So, um, and then the government said to them, go out and spend it. And they didn't t say where to spend it. They just said, go and spend it. And um, I'm not aware of any other country that did that during the global financial crisis. But Australia very much avoided the most of the impact of um, of the crisis. Uh, we just didn't have a, a financial crisis here or or even a, a slowdown in our real GDP growth. Our real, real GDP growth just carried on as before. There were a few other things. The government did increase a lot of uh, spending, local spending um, in Australia. They spent a lot of money on schools at the same time. Um, uh, from again, they just they just basically increased the deficit. It was just deficit spending. They they borrowed them money by issuing bonds, and, and away they went. And they could do that because uh, we had a budget situation where there wasn't a lot of bonds on issuance anyway. So our our government did all of that, and it had a big positive effect. So getting the money into the hands of the people who will spend it is more important than, than just, uh, you know, getting money into the hands of the wealthy because the wealthy, of course, don't need to spend it. So your point there is, I think, a really, really critical, really important. It's the same with, with infrastructure. You can say, oh, infrastructure is a great spend, but if you build it on the wrong infrastructure, then you're just basically not doing the best you can with, with the money. So they're not productive. So governments don't tend to pay a lot of attention to this. They just tend to sort of go for the big bang, the big bang for the buck and try and create a GDP number by by spending. There was, there was one other place as well that did the, or probably a number of other places, but one that I recall very distinctly that did the um, that Australian approach of putting money in people's bank accounts, and that was Singapore. Singapore oh. made, I think, a cheque for a couple of thousand Sing dollars to every Singaporean citizen resident in Singapore, if I, if I remember. And um, basically, sort of the instruction was go spend it. Uh, and, okay. um, well, there you go. That's very interesting because Australia and Singapore, of course, are, are close and um, have been for decades in terms of at the highest levels. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, uh, when he was leading Singapore, had, I mean, he'd spent a lot of time in Australia as a young man. And, you know, could, and the connections between our governments are quite high. So 
Uh, I hadn't, didn't know that. So again, thank you for that comment. Um, he, he, was, he wasn't always very nice about Singapore, though, was he? Ah, <laughs> uh, he was a you know, he's a checkered genius. He's a genius, I think. But he was a but nonetheless, he did a lot of good things for his nation, and um, and you know, very interesting to hear. I didn't know that. I didn't. I did not know that Singapore did that in the financial crisis. So. You know, but governments are loath to do that normally. They just it, all the economists will tell them you just can't hand money to people, and Australia and Singapore proves you can. And not only can you do it, it it works. And and you can call it what you like. You can call it you know a prepayment of uh, tax refunds or something. I mean, you can, at the end of the day, the money gets into people's hands, and uh, if if those people have the incentive and propensity to spend they'll spend and and at the end of the day that's going to stop a recession so governments i think need to do that more we're still seeing governments i think not thinking carefully about that uh, if if we do wind up in a global recession then they will start thinking about those things more i think i don't know that we're going to get a global recession but i don't think we you know it's going to be a very flat period for the next year or two yes i think i'd be a bit more negative that Jerry, and that um, for me, there's very clearly a downward trajectory in the global economy right now. And, and again, it's probably appropriate in some ways to be talking about downward trajectories right now because going back to our, our theme of disruptive technology with no real commercial value, it was uh, it was the debut for uh, Virgin Galactic on the New York Stock Exchange the other day, wasn't it? And the, the price shot up and then came crashing back down. I don't know what that means, but then I don't know what anything means for a purportedly you know, travel business that's only ever had five passengers so far. Uh, it seems to make more money as a fashion business selling uh, selling those nice Virgin Galactic uh, uniforms. I think if we look at the U.S. economy, to me, the trajectory there is very negative in that manufacturing has been heading down for a while, as, as I've been saying, and now services seem seems to be getting kind of sucked into that that vortex. If we look globally, you know, similar things been happening, but it's it's more it's more advanced, it's more progressed. So. You know, we're in manufacturing recessions in, in most of the world. We're in trade volume recessions. We're, we're actually, you know, starting to see a number of economies, uh, major economies, start to flirt with or go into recession, uh, full-blown recession. So when you look at all that, and to me, the trajectory at the moment is very significantly downwards. Don't believe that, uh, you know, central bank action is going to do anything to reverse that trajectory. I'm sceptical about the extent to which the direct purchases by the Fed, for instance, are going to, are going to change that. And as I said earlier, I'm very skeptical that now even unprecedented levels of stimulus are, are going to be enough to end up getting you know, enough money into the right places uh, to, 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 to change that trajectory. It could happen. I mean, none of us can know what the direction is going to be tomorrow. But at the moment, we, we seem to be globally on a very downward economic trajectory and with a very, very you know, thin margin left before we go from slowdown into contraction. So I'm, I think I'm a lot more worried than, uh, than, than you sound. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so worried. I mean, I, I think we've got to bear in mind that, for instance, the US economy is it's approximately 80% services orientated. It might be 70, 75, but it's, it's somewhere between 70 and 80%. So it's, it's largely a services economy and its retail sales are holding up quite nicely. And... Trump is going to spend spend like mad. So I'm not too worried about the US. And I think the US is a very, very large part of the global economy. So not too worried about that. The only thing I'd say there is, is well, two things. One is, you know, services and consumer spending are the key yeah, drivers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But services tend to have a lag from manufacturing. They tend, they tend to be led to some extent by manufacturing. This doesn't always happen. And, and you know, it's not a, it's not a, perfectly reliable correlation by any means. But the fact that we can see services starting to slow and starting to get you know, sucked down into this vortex by um, by manufacturing contraction, that, that to me is worrying. And the, the second thing I'd say is I, I don't take as much comfort as you do from retail having held up, partly because it seemed to hold up maybe July and August. It's it's not clear how well it held, up, it held up in September if you look at the figures that are coming out from retailers. And most of the guidance from retailers 
as, as far as I guess they can tell the, the future of their own business better than anybody else can. But most of the guidance that's coming out from retailers at the moment is very, very negative. So I think that itself would worry me. But also, historically, retail isn't a great leading indicator of economic slowdown. There's a, a, you know, I often say that the consumer is the last one to get the memo. When things go wrong, the consumer is often the last one to know about it. There's a lot of reasons why you'd think that wouldn't be true, but historically, retail has, has not been a reliable recession or growth indicator. And so there's a lot more warning signs in what's already happened in manufacturing and what appears to be starting to happen in services and in the fact that the rest of the world is seemingly uh, on such a downward trajectory. So it can change tomorrow. We, we could certainly yeah. get them much, much better tomorrow. But I think at the moment, the impetus is, is heading towards not only low growth, but potentially contraction recession. Yeah, all good points. But I still would, would say that, you know, the services and uh, it's still, you know, 80% of the of the big economies, the big advanced economies. So, I mean, I, I think we've got to see real evidence of deterioration in the services economy before I would get too worried. The other thing, though, that I've noticed uh, just lately is a pickup in commodity prices. And uh, this is a big surprise when the whole world is talking about uh, global recession risk. Uh, suddenly, I'm seeing good strength in commodity prices, and it's across the board. A lot of people haven't talked about this yet because it's a very, very early days, but I wouldn't have expected this. And, and of course, it's at the end of a very, very long decline in most commodity prices. So I just wonder whether we're seeing a turning point there in regard to commodity prices. And and if we are, then we can't be heading into a global recession. So I watch these things very, very closely. And there's even strength in the food area at the moment. Uh, the sort of the, the big bulk food prices are starting to um, respond. Now, it's very early days. I'm only talking two months of, of improvement in these commodity prices. But uh, nonetheless, it's there. And it's a bit of a surprise to find when everybody's talking about uh, the doom and gloom global recession coming. I don't know if you've noticed those those prices in the commodity sector, Paul. Have you had a look at those lately? Yeah, I have. I mean, I took a slightly different, I took a slightly different message from commodity prices and that, you know, the, the, the one that I would you know, classically look to first is, uh, is the price of copper. And if you look at copper over a reasonable term, it's really had uh, a pretty pretty bad time. I mean, you're right in that it's picked up over, I would guess, the last month or so. Um, yeah, the last two months, yeah. Two months, is it? Okay. You know, before that, it's had a pretty rough time. So there, there is almost a sort of dead cat bounce aspect to this. But the, the other thing, you know, historically, copper was meant to be, you know, Dr. Copper, it was meant to be the, uh, the commodity that, uh, that, that kind of took the pulse of the global economy. But there was a great chart the other day. I think it was David Ingalls from Bloomberg, who posted uh, copper versus the Taiwanese stock index. Uh, the idea being that both of them historically are you know, bellwethers, but both of them are, are meant to be imbued with, uh, with some kind of forecasting uh, capabilities. And both of them were incredibly correlated for, for a pretty long period until I think it was probably about six months ago, something like that, when copper started, uh, started heading down. And Taiwanese, uh, the Taiwanese index uh, just carried on going up. So, you know, that, that sort of disconnect, that divergence, it could be, it could mean absolutely nothing at all. It could just be something completely random. It could be, but, but, uh, but I guess, you know, one, one question that a lot of people who follow that have asked is, well, if they're diverging, which one's, which one's right, which one's wrong? If we believe the Taiwanese index, then everything's okay. If we believed copper for most of the last six months or so, then everything's really pretty, pretty damn grim. But as I say, you, you have just seen this kind of pick up over the last couple of months or so. And, and maybe that, if that continues, reinforces a lot of the optimism that's, uh, that's priced into bellwether indices such as Taiwan. Yeah, well, Taiwanese, the stock market index in Taiwan is doing really well at the moment. It looks as strong as an ox. And uh, there's uh, quite a few others. I've, I wrote in my boom editorial this week that I think that we're onto a risk on phase. And the stock markets I listed as doing really well included Taiwan. But the others, I'll just read the list, uh, was Japan, Russia, Singapore, Switzerland, France, 
Germany, Spain, and the Netherlands. Now, that's a pretty interesting list of stock markets that are, are suddenly starting to come to life. It's all only its early days like the commodity prices. The commodity prices and these stock markets have only come to life in the last month or two. We're looking at something, if it's real, it's very, very early, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's there. And I've brought that to my readers' attention. The other thing that's happened is that the large US banks are looking really strong. And so are some of the large global banks' share prices looking strong. And the large engineering companies like ABB and Siemens, there's been a spectacular rises in some of these share prices of the uh, the big global engineering companies just in the last, again, it's only the last month or two. But it, none of that, none of that reflects a global recession. So, you know, I'm sort of taking the view that uh, the global recession story is very much overblown. I think uh, we might be at the absolute bottom here and we could be seeing signs in the financial markets that uh, we're at the bottom and that, that things are going to actually get better from here. Because I can't see any other reason why ABB and Siemens and would would just suddenly see huge increases in the share prices. And uh, companies like HSBC and Barclays, I mean, it's very strange. These are global international banks that are not regarded as doing very well, but their share prices are doing well. And then when you look at that list I just read out, you know, Japan, Taiwan, Russia, Singapore, Switzerland, France, Germany, Spain, and the Netherlands, all of these stock markets uh, are showing a lot of strength. So uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling more positive, I've got to say. And, and then this you know, then if you factor into the commodities in, in price improvements and the fact that a lot of the advanced econ- economies are, are service-based economies, then I'm fairly uh, positive, I've got to say at this point, that we're actually turning the corner here. And it won't be due to any uh, one, as I've said, I'm, I'm negative about Western uh, advanced economy leadership, but maybe people are just, uh, for some reason, the herd turns, you know, and, and when the herd turns, um, they've had enough of negativity and they've had enough of sitting at home uh, doing nothing and they go out and start spending and um, and the economies take off. Uh, often that happens at the least expected time. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of possible uh, good positive things happening. So, you know, it'll be interesting to look at this in a few months' time if, when we do our next podcast uh, to look back and see if uh, early October was a turning point. So, but also I do hasten to say in my editorial this week, Paul, I always quote my famous philosopher, uh, Yogi Berra. I always say it's tough making predictions, especially about the future. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just leave you with one very left field thought in that case. Yep. Indicative. It's certainly not evidence, but maybe as as indicative of the, the fact that things could be much worse than you think out there. I noticed with interest last week that Keppel Reit, the, I think the biggest and oldest, or certainly one of the biggest, one of the oldest um, real estate investment trusts in Singapore, decided to sell one of its original holdings that it's uh, that it's had for 13 years since the week was launched, the, the Bugis Junction Shopping Centre. And I, I think it got somewhere between half a billion and a billion uh, Sing dollars, if I remember correctly, selling the property, which which equated to a pretty good return on the property from from the holding period from from when they bought it. Uh, it, it equated to a good return on the property from uh, <clears throat> from the current book value, and seemingly they're going to pay down the leverage and the REIT uh, with the proceeds. And the the, the buyer was a uh, was an American institution. I I just but- wondered. Why Singapore's biggest REIT, which presumably it owns, controls, invests in many of the biggest shopping centres, office blocks, etc., in Singapore, I just wonder why they would choose this time. And and again, it may mean absolutely nothing at all. Maybe they're going to go and buy something bigger with the funds, but they didn't announce any intention to do so. They did announce, you may have missed it, but they announced about ten days ago a big reduction in their profit for their third quarter. Absolutely. Uh, a really big drop in their pre-tax profit from their property division. So maybe they're just you know trying to pull some cash in to make things look better. Uh, I don't know. I don't follow this company closely, but it could just be a one-off there. Um, it, it, it absolutely could be a one-off, but it also could be a sign that maybe they're finding you know uh, it, it 
you know, difficult, as you say, to, to make as much money in current conditions. Maybe they're seeing that the outlook in Singapore real estate, which I think is a commercial retail real estate, I think is a, is a, is a reasonable indicator of the Singapore economy. Maybe their outlook is so negative. It just strikes me as to actually cash in on something that's almost an iconic part of their portfolio since inception. I say it could mean absolutely nothing at all. It could just mean American investors came along with a checkbook that was a few sizes. <laughs> That's right. To me, I don't know. I, I I don't know whether sometimes you get smoke without fires um, or whether this is something more more meaningful. Yeah, I don't know the answer. Uh, I just saw that they had a big problem with their profit in the third quarter. I don't I don't know the answer to that, but. You know, it's a small economy, Singapore, all sorts of things could be happening inside the Singaporean economy, which probably don't mean much to the rest of the world. Uh, I was actually there last week, um, but I can't really comment. I was only there for two days, so can't really comment about it. So I don't know. Um, but the commodity strength, the uh, stock market strength in these, you know, these many different stock markets is there. And uh, I just don't know why. I mean, uh, I mean, if you look at the German stock market, for instance, it's going gangbusters. And why? It's going into, presumably, going into recession. And uh, so, or if it's not there already. And I just think, well, how can this be? You know, what's going on here? So I just bring it to our listeners' attention that as of 29th of October today, the stock market investors uh, in these markets are just uh, being very optimistic so as they were 90 odd years ago or 90 years ago jerry yeah that's right and that's 1929, <laughs> on the 29th of october correct it could well be the uh, could well be the history repeating itself and on, on that point i think that's a good way to end the discussion i i hope it's not a repeat of 1929 but i think we've had a lot of uh, interesting discussions here today a lot of food for thought for everybody listening and I want to thank you again for an interesting chat, Paul. Likewise. Thanks, Jerry. I always learn thank, a lot. Thank you, Paul. And that concludes podcast number seven. Jerry, Paul, and I, Simon Harrow, thank you very much for listening. Remember, there's a link to the notes in the information section. And also, don't forget to subscribe to receive each of these podcasts automatically. Thanks. Bye for now. Bye.